Well, welcome to episode number 332 of the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Most of you guys listening are going to be do-it-yourself hunters. Maybe you've never been on a guided hunt. Maybe you've never even considered it. But I know that some of you have gone and, for sure, will go on guided hunts in the future. And one of the topics I've been curious about as I plan my first guided hunt for Mountain Goat this coming fall is just understanding more about guides and guided hunting and the misconceptions that someone like myself who's never done a guided hunt has about the experience. And so today we're speaking with Colton Heward. He is a professional hunting guide as well as a passionate do-it-yourself hunter. And so he has a combination of experience where he's done many hunts as a guide and he's also does many hunts even still to this day on his own for himself. And so we speak with Colton about some of the misconceptions that hunters have of guided hunts. We learn more about guides and how they spend their time both during and in the off season of a hunting season. We talk about what makes a good hunter or client on a guided hunt, as well as what hunters overlook when preparing for guided hunts. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and it is certainly something that I've learned from and enjoyed. I know that you will too. Before we get into the show, just want to remind you guys that if you ever want to contact us with any questions, comments, or feedback for the show, you can send an email to podcast at exomongear.com. And also, it helps us tremendously if you consider leaving a review or rating on the show wherever you're listening to it, or maybe share it with a friend as well. Hit pause and do that if you have a second and come right back. Here's this conversation with Colton Heward. Colton, welcome to the Hunt Back Country Podcast. Excited to chat with you, man. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, we uh, got connected, I think it was earlier in 2021, and uh, you picked up a pack from us. We kind of met a little bit through Joseph on Benedict, who's a, kind of a mutual friend. And uh, it's been fun to see your just even 2021 unfold for you. You had a heck of a year and a lot of adventure. We can get into some of that, but I guess kick things off, man, with some personal intro background, whatever you want to share to get uh, listeners some context for who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, I appreciate you guys having me on. You know, Joseph uh, is a good friend of mine. He actually um, was my, he headed my internship uh, for multimedia journalism, uh, diving into outdoor writing a couple years ago. And so that's how I touch base with him. And he and I have become good, good friends. And um, I do a little segment on his podcast all about every other week. And so that's, that's been fun, but yeah, 20, 2021, man, was was a pretty incredible year. Uh, just been super blessed and super fortunate to be able to do some uh, pretty cool things and be in the right place at the right time. Um, I am a, a hunting guide here in northern Utah, have been for this past season was my 10th year, uh, seventh year full-time. The first three years were just part-time doing a few weeks a year. but So I do that full-time in the fall, and then I I – have been doing quite a bit of outdoor writing the last year or so, year and a half, um, for several publications, uh, mostly like Peterson's hunting, uh, backcountry hunter guns and ammos, SIPs like precision rifle shooter, AR 15. Um, I just picked up the guns and loads column in wildfowl magazine and, uh, done a little bit of work for American hunters. So anyways, I'm just freelancing. Um, but it's been, 
super fun. I, I absolutely love what I, what I get to do and what I get to call my job. Yeah. Sounds like a blast. When you say internship, was that part of like a, a structured education program or how did that come together? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was attending Weber state university. Um, and what I was doing actually was I was going to school in the spring and summer. And then I was taking the falls off like my summer break to work and guide. Um, and I, my degree is in multimedia journalism and I went with the intent of wanting to be an outdoor writer. Uh, you know, hunting is all I've ever known. It's what I've done since I, since I could walk really. Um, and I've always enjoyed writing as well as, as my education kind of progressed. And, and I saw that there was an opportunity to potentially hunt and write and make a living out of it. And I decided to chase it and it's been, it's been pretty fun. That's cool, man. Yeah. What was, cause you were like all over in 2021. I'm sure you could <laughs> spend hours telling stories, everything from Africa to Alaska to several States in the lower 48 for elk yeah. and mule deer and everything. Um, I'm sure it's hard to pick, but what's a highlight? Like what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of 2021, your hunting adventures? You know, I think the biggest highlight would be uh, hunting grizzly bear in Alaska with my dad. Um, it's a hunt that, that my dad and I have talked about doing for a long, long time. Um, in all reality, it's one of those hunts that oftentimes you think is so far out of your reach that, you know, it, you'll, it'll never happen. Um, but I can tell you there's ways to make it happen. You know, it's, uh, if you want something bad enough, you make it happen. And that was, it was a, just an incredible experience. We flew into Kotzebue, um, and we were hunting about 120 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So we were hunting interior grizz, um, but we saw tons of bears. Uh, you know, we both killed just beautiful bears, and Alaska is just a special place. Uh, it, it gets in your blood, and you just want to keep going back. So that, yeah. that would, I, if I had to pick one, that would, that would probably be it. Yeah. Were you going to say there, Steve? I don't know. I said, heck yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So did you were guided then on that hunt? Yeah. Yeah, I was. So, so in August I went up and I packed for Mont Mahoney of Alaska doll sheep guides. Uh, Mont's been a good friend for many, many years. In fact, my grandfather helped him get his outfitting business started. Um, I mean, my grandpa has been dead since 2008 and he was guiding for Mont for several years before that. And so we've known Mont for a long time. That's actually who I hunted my doll sheep with in 2011. Um, and he contacted me and just asked if I had time to come and help him pack this fall. He was short on packers and I, I had the time and, and I wanted to just go be in sheep country. And so I went and, and helped and had an incredible time. And, and what I did was I worked off part of my grizzly bear hunt because Mont also guides uh, grizzly bear hunts. And so I, I just took no pay on the, on the sheep hunt um, and put some of that and then had to come up with obviously quite a bit more, but uh, for the bear hunt, but I just put what I made, what he would have paid me for the sheep hunt towards the bear hunt. And uh, we went bear hunting. That's cool. Were you uh, sheep hunting or was that up in the brooks as well? Uh, It was actually in the wrangles. Oh, nice. Yep. Yep. Mont's Mont's main concession that he's had for a long, long time is in the Alaska range. That's where I killed my sheep. Um, and the Alaska range had a pretty big die off. And so what he ended up doing was bumping all of his hunters. I think we had 10, 10 hunters in the wrangles. Um, and it was incredible. Uh, 
the the wrangles just i think we went eight for ten and the only two hunters that didn't kill um were because they gave up more or less <laughs> uh, i've heard i've heard the wrangles are a little bit rougher than the alaska range is that yeah. your experience Yes, yeah. I, I I would definitely agree with that. There's parts of the Wrangles that are, I mean, incredibly rugged. I mean, uh, un, untouchable, really. Um, but there's the the parts that we were hunting were definitely a little more rugged than the Alaska range where I had been. Um, but man, we saw tons of sheep, way more sheep than I anticipated. I'll never forget in the one drainage. This is going to sound ridiculous, but I know we saw over forty rams in one drainage. Wow! Holy crap! Um, only two or three that I could say for sure were legal, but the amount of sheep and the amount of rams, um, in this area we were hunting and in that drainage was, was absolutely incredible. Hmm. Wow. So, I thought I'll, the Wrangles was, uh, like a draw hunt. Um, or maybe not with it. Did he get maybe with a guided to be perfectly honest? I don't know enough about the Alaska draw. There might be some areas in the Wrangles that are draw, but I know the area that we were hunting is, you know, a uh, over-the-counter tag. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I'm. The more time I spend in Alaska, the more envious I become of Alaska residents and the opportunity <laughs> yeah. that they have available to them. Right. Yeah. The only thing, yeah, the only thing I noticed there is like it's, you know, still if you're a resident and you want to go sheep hunting, you're still a couple grand in flights and just getting out there. I mean, yeah, there's some walk-in areas, but it's not uh, definitely not cheap. Yeah. No, for sure. And I mean, and that's the area we were in was. I mean, there's. I guess you could walk, but you'd be walking for months. I mean, we were, you know, several bush, bush planes into where yeah. we were, but, uh, I'm, I'm actually working. I, I believe I've got my hours. I'm working on getting my assistant guide license going through that process right now. And hopefully I'll be guiding this August instead of packing. So nice. yeah, it'd be fun. Heck yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's initially, uh, that hunt is what drove me, uh, to kind of look more into a gear revamp and, and it ultimately led me to, to buying one of your guys's packs. Um, you know, I've used a lot of different packs. Um, you know, the, the pack that I was using before was, it was a Kafaru and there was nothing wrong with the pack, but it just didn't fit me personally very well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I just never got super comfortable with it. And I was looking for potentially a little bit lighter option. And I did hours and hours and hours. And I'm sure anybody who's buying these high impacts can, can, um, understand, you know, what, what it's the, this process, but you go through hours and hours of reading and it's like, there's only so much that you can read online. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually you've got, you've got to jump and, and try something and figure out what works best for you. And, Ultimately, I decided on that 4,800, which I worried a little bit about being able to fit 10 days worth of gear, you know, and, and I, you know, when I'm talking gear, I mean, we were, it was everything, you know, with the tent, pad, sleeping bag, food. Uh, the only thing that I wasn't carrying was a rifle on that sheep hunt. Um, and I can honestly say I, I filled every inch of that pack, but I fit 10 days worth of gear in that pack. And then when we were packing sheep out, just use the meat shelf and it was just fine. Perfect. Yeah. It's amazing what, um, yeah, a, a lot of guys just assume you need like a 6,400 or something like that. But if you're, you know, pay attention to your gear and make, you know, some choices in the lighter direction, you can certainly stretch a 4,800 out to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it, this this might sound kind of bad, but it, it made it kind of nice because it made it so I didn't have any room to carry anybody else's gear. Right? <laughs> 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 there, there is a little method to the madness. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you're the you're the quote unquote packer, but you're like, oh, sorry, man, my pack's full. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, the the hunters that we had, you know, they were they were very good people and and wanted the entire sheep hunting experience. I'm sure there will be some that. You know, they, they definitely need a little more assistance and maybe need their food packed in or their tent packed in or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it worked out well. And again, you know, when we had to pack meat coming back out, you know, we just, I just used the meat shelf and that opened up enough space that dude, it was, it worked perfect. Great. Well, talk about that. Like, so when you say a packer and honestly, part of what I wanted to discuss with you is just some some of the things about guides or guiding that maybe many hunters like myself, myself who hasn't been on a guided hunt, like I don't understand, like I have ideas, but I probably have a lot of misconceptions. Um, yeah, for sure. And so we'll get into some of that, but like start with a packer. I mean, what uh, the name self-explanatory, you're there to help pack uh, potentially before, during, and after the hunt. Um, but talk about what your role and you can keep in the context of that specific hunt. Like, what did that look like for you? Like what, how are you, um, yeah. What's your role basically? Yeah. So, so every state is a little bit different about like guiding, uh, licenses needed verbiage and whatever. Alaska in particular is very strict on, um, you know, for non-residents, uh, things are sheep, bear, goat, you know, things like that. They have to be with a guide, a licensed guide. And so that's why the the term packer up there implies that I do not have my guide license or my assistant guide license. Um, and in order to get that license, you have to have certain number of days, a certain number of, you know, a certain number of days working with an outfit. You have to, I'm trying to remember all the specific details, but you have to have, I think hunted three different species of animals up there, um, have a letter of recommendation. Anyways, it's, it's quite the process to get your license. And so essentially as a packer up there, I was just there working for Mont, uh, doing whatever he needed. And I was assigned to a guide, um, and his hunter. And essentially I was just there for help. Um, you know, and it, it was kind of odd because it, it was funny. The, the guide that I was helping, he'd been up there helping Mont pack for three or four years, I believe. But this was actually the first officially guided hunt that he had done where he was the guide and not the packer. And on the flip side, you know, I've been guiding hunts, obviously not for sheep, but uh, deer, elk, antelope, moose hunts here in, in Northern Utah and a few other States for years and years. And so it was actually kind of nice to be able to just take a step back and be like, you know what? It's not not as much pressure on me. Right. I don't have to determine the legality of a sheep and whatnot. Um, and just go hunting and and help out spot, you know, help out cooking dinner. I mean, essentially you're just there to help out with whatever they need for, for us, the hunter was not needy. And so we just went hunting and I helped spot and it was just more or less three good friends going hunting. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Even, uh, I, th- I think some guy, and we have, I mean, people listen to this podcast with all different types of contexts and experience and, uh, time invested in hunting. And so even hearing like guide versus outfitter 
guys may be confused. Do you want to kind of clarify even the differences in those roles? Because some guys may use that inter- interchangeably, but there's a, a difference there um, for many yeah, operations. Yeah, no, for, for sure. I know here in Utah, there's there's actually a difference between an outfitter license and a guide license. Um, you know, and, and and the outfitter typically owns the outfit, the business itself, and they're the ones that are in charge of essentially the you know, the outfitters will often guide as well, but the outfitter is there to uh, juggle logistics and make sure everything's taken care of and the guides work for the outfitter. Yeah, perfect. That's one thing to keep in mind too, just as uh, guys are considering potentially booking hunts, whether that's near-term or far-term of, you can look at outfitters, but then realizing that you may talk to the outfitter on the phone, but some guys are into the impression, oh, that's who I'm going to be hunting with. And that's not necessarily Correct. the case because you're getting assigned to one of the outfitters guides. And so those are just some yep. of the questions to begin to uh, talk to that outfitter about really. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the most important things to do when someone is looking to book a hunt is to ask for references, ask to talk to people that have hunted with that specific outfitter and any good outfitter is going to have a list of references. And I would even get a little bit more specific than that and ask for references of people that have been successful, but also ask for a reference or two of someone who has been unsuccessful. If you talk to somebody that has hunted with that outfit and not killed their animal that they were there to hunt and still had a good time, you're probably talking to a pretty valuable outfit. Uh, you know, someone who goes in and, and has success, obviously that's the ultimate goal, but it's anybody for the most part, uh, if you go in and have success, you're going to have good things to say. Right. And, and so I think it's important to talk to, to both because guided, unguided, whatever, it will increase your odds of success, but it's still a hunt. Nothing's ever guaranteed. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point to talk to unsuccessful hunters. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like I said, I, mean, I just think you know, a lot of people don't necessarily think that through. And, you know, like you said, they'll talk to the outfitter because that's typically who they are talking to when they're looking to book a hunt. Um, you know, that's another question when you're talking to these references is ask, you know, who is your guide? You know, what, what did you like? What didn't you like? Um, you know, is there a guide in camp that everybody seemed to like that I should request? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole, you always hear ask for references, but there's actually a whole nother layer to that question. Yeah. That's great. I didn't, uh, so for context for you, Colton, I am going on my first guided hunt this fall to mountain goat hunt in Alaska and I'm working with a small operation. So it's kind of a guide outfitter. I'll be with the outfitter who will be my guide. So I wasn't in my process. Yes. I was getting reviews, uh, or sorry, references, uh, but I wasn't thinking through questions to that level because it's in in this situation, it's one and the same, the guide and the outfitter. So it is really helpful because that's more of a unique situation where the guide and outfitter and one. So I'm glad you, glad you shared some good info there. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, when you can hunt with the outfitter, I mean, obviously that's going to be a pretty neat situation. And I, you know, a, a guide or an outfitter is, is not going to hire guides that he doesn't trust. Um, but when you're hunting with the outfitter themselves, they just have a little more skin in the game. You know, they, their business lives and dies off of you being successful and, or having, a good time, you know, a successful hunt, whether that means a, a harvest or not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so the, when you have the ability to hunt with the outfitter, yeah, jump on. It. I think that that's, that's always a good option, but more often than not is, uh, not likely. Yeah. So 
you said you've been guiding about 10 years, seven for full time. Uh, how did you get your start doing that? So I, I actually grew up with, uh, the lands. Um, my, I, I work for wild country outfitters and Tom land is the outfitter there. And I grew up with his boys and grew up playing baseball together, traveling the country, um, playing baseball wherever we could. And also went to school together. Well, after, um, after school, I, I served a, a LDS mission and I, I came home and I actually ran into Tom at a wedding reception in October. Um, he had come off the mountain to, to come down and, and go to this wedding reception of a mutual friend. And I was talking to him, asking him how his thing, you know, his hunts were going and whatever. And, and his son, Austin was also there who I was talking to. And just in, you know, in passing, as we were getting ready to leave, you know, I said, Hey, if you guys ever need help, uh, you know, I'd love to, to come up and, and help out up on the ranch. And I believe that was on either a Friday or Saturday. And Austin called me on Sunday and said, Hey, any chance you could come up tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, at the time I was an assistant manager at a T-Mobile store. And so I kind of helped make the schedule there and moved a few things around, um, and was able to, to make that work. And that was a, a mule deer hunt. And ever since then, you know, those first three years, like I said, I just did a, a few weeks a year and then helped out on the cow hunts. And then, uh, seven years ago, I, I hopped on and went, went full time and I've been going since. So it's been good. I, 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 I thoroughly love what I do. I really do. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment out of seeing others be successful and being a part of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's for the most part, it's just a fulfilling job. What, what a lot of people don't realize, I don't think is, uh, at the end of the day, it's still a job, right? And, and, you know, everybody tells me like, oh, you've got the greatest job ever. And I don't disagree. Like I literally get to hunt for a living and, and I am super grateful, um, for that opportunity. But at the end of the day, you know, what people don't see is the late nights at the, at the meat shed, you know, 12, one o'clock in the morning, cutting up elk. And then you get up the next morning early and you do it all over again. And, you know, people don't see that side of it or having to, uh, you know, I say this like most people are really good, but you don't get to pick who you're hunting with when you're guiding either. Right. And so you never know if personalities are going to clash. And like I said, for the most part, it's, it really is pretty good, but, um, you just, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's still a job, but if you love what you do, you, you make it work. Yeah. What's, um, the transition from, you said you grew up hunting and then got into guiding. You just talked about how did your hunting experience equip you to be a good guide? And I'm sure there's a lot there, but more than that, like, what are the things that you kind of had to learn maybe the hard way of like, Oh man, hunting is one thing. Guiding is another thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, I, I was incredibly fortunate to have a dad and a grandfather who are just inflict, afflicted by the same hunting bug that, that we are, and was fortunate to have some pretty incredible opportunities, you know, hunting, uh, in multiple States. And, um, it's just, it gets in your blood and it literally became 
all I ever wanted to do. You know, and I, I still, I still laugh and chuckle a little bit. Uh, you know, people would always say, you know, you can't make a living being a hunter <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, you kind of figured can. it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, 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 there's, there's different ways around it. Um, but it, just the opportunities that I had growing up from the time I was a little kid until now you, you, you learn and you grow from every hunt. And I think that, you know, starting out as a guide, I was, I was pretty green to the fact, you know, that there, the way that I had always done, it wasn't the way that it always should be done. Um, you know, it, it really opened my eyes to, uh, you know, other methods of hunting, um, other ways to be successful. Um, and as a guide, we can, we can do everything for them, but pull the trigger, right? We, we can't pull the trigger for them. And there's just things that are out of our control. And I think that was the hardest thing that I had to come to grips with as a guide is when I'm hunting on my own, I'm in control of the things that I can control. But when I'm a guide, I'm not the hunter. And I, you know, there's things that the hunter has to control that I have zero control over. And so just learning to recognize what those things are, recognizing people's limitations, whether that be, uh, you know, physical limitations or mental limitations of, you know, what the, uh, the abuse, I guess that they can, can take. Um, you just have to learn to recognize that. And, and every week's different. Um, you know, you can't treat the client I had last week. Like I treat the client that I do this week, as far as, you know, what we need to do to, to be successful. So you, so you just have to be willing to, to adapt, but in the end, it makes, it makes me, uh, that much better, uh, of a hunter. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but I just, I get to see a lot of different, uh, ways to do things and ways not to do things. And, and so you just live and learn each, each, each hunt. Yeah. Going back to, you kind of mentioned earlier, the hunters don't see all the hours and work that, that guides put in. What are just other misconceptions that hunters have either about guides and their role or maybe just about guided hunts in general? Mm, you know, I think the biggest misconception is just that just because you, you know, you paid for this hunt doesn't mean that you are going to kill a 350 bull or a 190 inch deer or, you know, be successful at all. Uh, you know, when you pay for a guided hunt, you're typically, uh, you know, paying so that you have a, a better opportunity to be successful. Um, and a, as a guide, if, if I give my hunter an opportunity to be successful, it's up to them to capitalize on that. And so, uh, you know, I, I just think that a lot of people just expect, you know, just because you're paying for, for these hunts that you're going to be successful and it's still hunting. Uh, and, and that's just not always the case. And so I think people just need to, uh, know that going in, yes, you are increasing your odds of success by hiring a guide, no doubt about it, but nothing's, nothing's ever guaranteed. And the people who come in with, you know, those kind of expectations, like, oh, I have to kill, uh, they can oftentimes be the ones that we struggle with the most. There's a lot of different things that determine the success of a hunt and it doesn't always have to be the kill. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed, um, honestly, primarily from hearing from podcast listeners and guys that write in and send us emails, 
you know, my, uh, again, a zero experience being on a guided hunt, very limited exposure to that, uh, period. Yeah. And so in my head, I would just always grew up. It's like, Oh, guided hunts are primarily guys who are looking for trophy potential or, you know, things like that. Um, but I've come to realize hearing from, even as I mentioned, listeners of the podcast that especially as more and more people grow up with less exposure to hunting and it's not part of their childhood or their upbringing. You have more of the called adult onset hunters. Yeah. Some of those hunters are interested in guided hunts because they feel like it can, uh, jumpstart their learning, give them the confidence to go on a hunt because they don't feel equipped to go DIY, things like that. For um, sure. Have you seen some of that? Like kind of, I don't want to necessarily change, but that some guys come in a guided hunts. It's not like this seasoned old guy who's just looking to kill a monster. It's just guys looking to get in the field essentially with someone and kind of get some experience. Yeah, absolutely. We've, I would say even just in the last couple of years, we've seen, we've seen more of that. Um, you know, uh, again, it, you know, let's let, I mean, if we talk specifically about elk hunting, the elk hunting on the, on the ranch that I guide on is absolutely world-class and the elk rut is insane. I mean, I've, I've never, I, I would dare say it's, I mean, better than Yellowstone or any, I mean, I don't know, I guess I've, I haven't been to enough places, but I've never seen or experienced anything like it. And so, you know, I get to when we're hunting elk, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see, I don't know, 25 to 46 point bulls a day. And they're just screaming and we can just dive right in and you'll just call in like bull after bull after bull. And you're having all these encounters and then you go and you hunt on public land, which keep in mind, the vast majority of the hunting that I've ever done is on public land. I grew up, you know, hunting public land. I still hunt primarily public land because that's where the opportunities are for me, uh, you know, where, and, um, as, as, a uh, when I get to hunt for myself, but you know, and when you're hunting those public land, when you're hunting public land for elk in particular on like a general season tag, you hear a bugle like two miles away or across the steep, nasty can. You're like, freaking put your pack on. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and if you have one or two, uh, uh, interactions with, you know, a, a screaming bull a year, you're like, you're feeling pretty good. And when I, on a, on a guided hunter on this place that I work, you know, we'll have a dozen interactions a day. And so, and there's a learning curve to say calling elk or whatever. And so you just increase, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you increase your, your learning curve exponentially by having, you know, say you hunt with me for five days, we have eight to 10 interactions a day, you know, that's 50 interactions with rutting elk and calling versus, you know, 50 interactions. That's more interactions than a lot of public land hunters are going to get in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's just a, a exponentially quicker learning curve, uh, when you're in a situation like that. And so there's like coming back to your initial point, you know, there's definitely been, uh, an increase in people who are going on these guided hunts. And I just use elk as an example, but you could, you could apply that to hunting, you know, anything, um, 
well, you know, when you're on a guided hunt and in a good area that you're just going to have a, a quicker learning curve to, to learn some of these things. Cause let's be honest. I mean, hunting is not an easy sport to get into. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you're just hunting general season, public land tags, can you be successful? Yes, absolutely. You can. But for somebody who has very little or no, uh, you know, background in it, uh, knowing where to start and getting started and kind of having that first taste of success, that's a, that's a large obstacle to overcome. Yeah. In my head, there's a huge advantage to everything you just talked about with the amount of encounters and basically shortening the learning curve, taking literally years of hunting and condensing it into a week. Right. And in my head, I feel like most of that applies to like the hunter, um, and knowing how to maybe read situations, just see elk, see how they behave, see how they respond, prepare yourself like mentally and and physically for shot opportunities, for example, um, getting more used to elk coming in, like knowing when to draw, for example, on an archery hunt, things like that. That's a huge advantage. At the same time, I'm also like, man, I wonder how much of, because as you said, the rut, for example, is so different on your property when you're guiding versus when you're hunting as a DIY public land hunter. Like there's got to be some, some level of like, you can't say it's apples to apples. Like it is right. Like you're going to yeah, get a ton I, it, of experience, but there's gotta be so many differences too. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the way, the way that you call elk on public land in a highly pressured area, you know, is very different. You know, we can be very aggressive up on the ranch and, you know, cause the elk aren't just getting pressure and getting everybody blowing their hoochie mama at them that, you know, they're, they're much more responsive to these calls and versus when we're on, on public land, you know, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a different, uh, a different experience. You have to use a few different tactics, but in general, I mean, a, a lot of what you're doing, the, the basics, I guess, is going to be the same. You just have to kind of tweak it for where you're at and, you know, take the temperature of the elk and see how they're responding and just go from there. But again, that's just something that comes with, with that experience, I think. Yeah. So what, what makes a good hunter or client on a guided hunt or feel free to mention the opposite? Like what are, what are ways that hunters maybe show up and make a hunt difficult or things like that? Um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that will set you up for failure going on a guided hunt is if you come in with unrealistic expectations. Um, you know, if, if, if you're going on a guided hunt, my, my favorite is when I get a client that, you know what, they're there for the experience and they just want to go hunting. And at that point, it's literally just like two good friends going hunting. And, 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 you know, and you can treat it as such when, when people come in with, you know, obviously you're paying money, right? So you're going to have some expectations of having a good hunt. But when I say unrealistic expectations, like this ranch that I guide on, for example, you know, our average bull is 320, maybe 325, which is a great bull. Um, but we'll get people who come in they're like, I'm not shooting a bull unless it's 350. And it's like, Okay we can hunt for a 350 bull and we do kill a few each year, but if we're going to hunt for a 350 bull, you know, I don't want you shooting a 300 bull on the last day just to kill an elk. You know, I'm perfectly fine if you want to, to hunt big, but let's hunt big. And so I think just having realistic expectations of the area. And again, maybe this comes back to, 
you know, asking the outfitter as well as asking the references, you know, about the quality of game that they saw and they expect to maybe help you kind of set realistic expectations going into your guided hunt. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just don't go in with unrealistic expectations of what the hunt is and, um, understand that your guide is going to do everything in his power to help you have a successful hunt. Um, you know, that's, that's our job. That's what we want is at the end of the end of the hunt, whether you kill or not, all I care about is that you go home happy. And if, you know, I, I, I always, it's one of the first questions I ask my hunters the first day, you know, is what are your expectations? So that I know going throughout that week of, of guiding them, what they're looking for to make sure at the end of the week that they're happy. And I think when you set those expectations, you know, ahead of time and they're realistic. Um, it just puts everybody in a better place to, um, make sure everybody has a good time. Cause like I said, that's as, as the guide, they are there to provide you with the best experience possible. And, and the best experience for Hunter a isn't going to be the same for Hunter B. And so you definitely have to uh, know those and be willing to adapt to them. How often do you guys come in early to the hunt who, you know, throw whatever number you want on it. Maybe it's that 350 bowl, the 190 buck, whatever. How often do those guys change their tune on day three or four of a hunt? <laughs> Fairly often. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, you know and, 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 and you know, what's funny is like, it's e even on like day two, right. You know, I've always said that most people don't understand how big, like a three, a solid 330 inch six point how big of a bull that that is like, you know, we'll, I'll have clients come in and they'll throw out that they want a 350 bull. And the second day, you know, we've got a beautiful 330 inch bull walk out on the hillside in front of us and they start freaking out and wanting to shoot it, you know, and, and, and I tell them, you know, that's not what you were looking for, what you're wanting to look for. And, and they just don't understand what it actually takes for a bull to get to 350 and how big that a 330 type bull really is. And so there's, there's definitely a lot of that. And then like, this like you said, you know, come day three, four, five, whatever that, you know, their expectations lower, I guess. And it, at that point, it kind of just becomes going out to kill something, which again, I, I don't necessarily agree with like, an animal shouldn't have to die just because you want to fill your tag. You know, if it's not what you're going to be happy with, I don't think we should be killing it. But again, I'm the guide, not the hunter. So whatever makes them happy. That's one thing I find interesting. And I would be in, in these shoes as well, if I were to say this, but it's like, I don't even know, like in the field, I haven't spent enough time with big bulls to know whether that is 330 or 350, you know, it's just like, Oh yeah, yeah that's big. I'd be happy. Yeah. You know, like that's where it kind of <laughs> ends for me, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and, and I try, honestly, I try and get away from score as much as I can for that exact reason. Like if, uh, uh, so on this, on the ranch, I guide on, we manage for seven and a half year old bulls and we manage for five and a half year old deer. And so my job as a guide is to determine the age, um, of that animal. And there's no exact science to it, uh, you know, aging an animal on the hoof, but there's definitely things that you know, we look for and that those older animals that, you know, they have certain characteristics that they take on. And so when, when a bull steps out, you know, I will tell my hunter, you know what, that bull is old. That bull is at least seven and a half years old. If you like him, shoot him. And at that point, 
you know, I don't care what he scores and what I've always said. And I try to preach to my hunters is if he gets you excited, kill him. We're here for the experience. You know, I don't want you to have, I I don't want you to get all pumped up, shoot that bull thinking it's a 350 bull, go over there. It's a freaking fantastic 345 bull and have you be disappointed in the hunt because it doesn't have that additional five inches that you were hoping to have when before you knew the score, it was just the best hunt ever. And, and, you know, and, and so I honestly, I just try and stay away from score as much as I can and just drive home that, you know, it's about the experience. Uh, you know, and if we're hunting old mature animals, we have to do something, you know, we're hunting hard. We have to do something to outsmart those old mature animals. They don't get to maturity being dumb and, and regardless of the inches on top of their head, if, if you had a good experience and you got excited when that animal stepped out or he was in your crosshairs, tip him over. We can't ask for much more than that. Forget the score. Mm-hmm. Walk us through uh, what you're doing to age uh, an elk on the hoof. Yeah. I mean, again, I said, there's, there's no particular like science to it. Um, but it's uh, elk age, just like a human does, you know, our, our bodies uh, change as we get older and elk do the same. And, you know, the biggest thing is, is, uh, body size. But the other thing that we look at very, uh, intently when we're looking at a mature bull is we look at the size of their head. Uh, an old mature bull has almost like a blocky Brahma bull looking head, as opposed to kind of a long skinny face. Um, you know, you also look for, you know, sway in the back, a pot belly, um, one thing that, that is, if we've noticed quite a bit is that the older bulls, uh, it's almost like their pedicles shrink. So like the, the bone between their skull and the horn shrink with those old bulls. And so when we see a bull that looks like those horns are literally just sitting flat on his head, as opposed to, you know, having three, four inches sticking up again, they're total, that's totally a non-scientific, uh, thing, but, we, we shoot over a hundred bull elk a year on this place. And so we get the opportunity to see a lot of dead bulls. We get an opportunity to age a lot of bulls, you know, and, you know, we will, will age a bull on the hoof and say, yeah, you know, we, that bull looks old. And then when we kill him, we, we check his, check the teeth. And we also cut out the, uh, two bottom teeth, two front bottom teeth. And we send them into the lab to get age tested on every bull that we kill. And so then we know, okay, you know, this is what we thought the bull was. This is what he actually was and bridge the gap in between. Any difference from mule deer? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the, kind of the same thing, you know, the, a, a big mule deer typically will have that big body. He's got that big head. One of the things that we look for in mule deer is they have that really an older buck, five plus year old deer is going to have a really prominent, uh, chest, so sticking out, you know, that, that, that chest bone between his front leg and where his neck starts, uh, a young deer doesn't have a real prominent chest there. And so you look for, you know, a big chest again, that sway in the back pot belly, um, a Roman nose. Uh, and again, you know, just that, that big head, as opposed to that kind of short skinny looking snout that deer have up till you know, two, three years old, a four-year-old buck, they'll start to take on some of those characteristics. And so you, you know, you kind of have to be careful there, but you know, when you get a buck, that's five, six, seven years old, like a seven-year-old deer, when you look at him, you're like, oh my gosh, shoot that deer. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it when you're looking at those super old deer, but it's just kind of learning to look for those, 
slight differences to tell the difference between like a four and a five-year-old. And uh, again, there's no science to it, but there's definitely certain characteristics that we can, can look for. And, and that, you know, is where we, we place the value of our trophies is in the age, not necessarily at the antlers on top of their head. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll have seven-year-old deer that score 200, whatever, you'll also have seven-year-old deer that might score 140. You know, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of, of factors to take into consideration there. And, and just because a deer is old, doesn't always equate and an elk as well. doesn't always equate to a lot of inches of antler on top of their heads. Gotcha. How many, I mean, it sounds like this is obviously you said killing a hundred elk a year. I mean, there's a ton of animals that you guys are looking at in hunting season, how much of that carries over into off season? Meaning you guys get to the point where you're hunting specific animals or no age class or have certain, you know, kind of a, a target list of bulls or bucks for that matter that you guys are hunting the deer unquestionably. Yes. Um, and, and I am an absolute mule deer junkie at heart. Um, hunting the mule deer is, is my passion. It's what I just am obsessed over. And, the, the mule deer hunting on this ranch is, is, is pretty special. And, and the short answer to answer your question is that, yes, the deer, it's one of the unique things when you're hunting private land is that, you know, we really get the opportunity to watch these deer grow up, you know, they'll come back to the same areas each year. And, you know, so you'll get to watch a deer when he's three, four, five, you know, in, in some instances, obviously some die of winter or lions or whatever, but we really get the opportunity to know these deer very well and watch them grow up. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we typically have, obviously we have a, you know, a hit list that we develop as the season goes on, but I mean, I've got bucks that I'm thinking of particularly right now that I know that last year were four-year-old deer that we didn't kill that I am pretty dang excited to see what they turn into this year. Um, the elk, not so much. There is, you know, there'll always be a bull or two. It's like, oh yeah, I think we saw that bull last year, you know, because he had some point that was, uh, an easy identifier. Um, but there's just so many elk on, on the place that it's, it's tough to kind of keep track of them. And I mean, a lot of those six point bulls, you know, a, a 300 to a 300 20, 330 inch bull. A lot of them just look so similar that I mean, we, I'm, we're obviously seeing a lot of the same bulls every year, but we can't differentiate them. Yeah. So I did want to ask as well, like for you and, uh, you know, not every guy's the same. You've already mentioned you're doing a lot of stuff outside of guiding with your writing and things like that, but talk a bit about maybe the low from a high level, like kind of the yearly cycle of a guide um, who's maybe a deer elk guide, at least here in the lower 48, you know, how are you spending this time of year, January, February, March, when do you start doing preseason scouting, that type of thing? Yeah, I would honestly, I mean, just thinking about the guides, the crew that we've got up on the ranch, the vast majority of them, I mean, but for the exception of like one or two guys, we all have other jobs that we do during the off season, you know, uh, several people own their own businesses. One, you know, uh, one guy's got like a landscaping and snow piling business. Um, I mean, uh, several different businesses that people have, uh, you know, because guiding is good and you can make a decent amount of money in a short amount of time, but for most people, it's not enough to live off of, um, you know, and so you have to find those other streams of income. Um, 
but the, the, so the off season, you know, everybody's just kind of working their own jobs, but I would say, you know, the outfitter himself, it's obviously, this is his sole, uh, job. And so he's the one that, you know, he spends a lot of time up on the ranch, you know, this time of year, um, just making sure that things are taken care of and then getting ready for, you know, he's working with the clients and setting dates and, and working through all that and working with the biologist and, you know, plans that they are projects that they want to do, uh, during the off season. And we all try and go up and, you know, we'll go help like spray weeds or put out mineral blocks or, uh, help out when we can. But I would say we don't get too serious about scouting till like July ish. Um, you know, and then from, from there, uh, several of the guides are up there several days a week, um, you know, versus, you know, some of like the part-time guys and, and whatnot are there, you know, maybe one or two times before the season opens. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's like you're on that ranch for 12 straight weeks. And so within the first two, three weeks, you know, we've got a pretty good idea of, of, you know, an inventory of really what's there. There's always something that'll show up here and there, but when you've got, we've typically got 15 to 20 hunters a week. And so when you've got that many hunters and guides going in 15 or 20 different directions every morning and every night, you know, we've, we've got a pretty good idea of, of what's there. That's wild to think of just even like the logistics of 15 to 20 guys out hunting potentially one day. It's yep. like, all right, like who, who's covering what, who's going where, obviously that's yeah. all decided ahead of time, but that's pretty wild. It's a pretty big operation. Yeah, it, it is a big operation, you know, and, and the guides make the, you know, uh, a big difference that, you know, we're all willing to work together. We have to work as a team or else it's not going to work. Um, you know, and so we're all, I mean, we're good friends. We're all willing to help each other out. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a fun operation, you know, and like, at the beginning of each week and, and keep in mind, this ranch is, uh, like just over 240,000 acres. So it's, it's a substantial piece of property. And, you know, so we've got lots of room to roam and the guides will all have, we'll have a guides meeting at the beginning of each week. And we're kind of assigned an area, um, for us to go. And so that way we're not stepping on top of each other's toes and not running into any problems there. But again, it's just a team effort. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm in my area and I glass across the big drainage and, and see a bull that we want to go after, I'm not going to go after that until I talk to the guy that's there and make sure he's not, you know, hunting, hunting that particular bull. And so we just have to work together and it all works out. Yeah. You mentioned biologist earlier, uh, the outfitter work with the biologist. Is that uh, like a state biologist or more of a, a resource that's brought in specifically for the health of the herd on the ranch? What does that look like? Yeah. So, so the ranch has a, a full-time biologist um, that is assigned to our ranch along with a few others um, that he oversees the um, biology of it. Uh, but he's the, the biologist is very, uh, uh, interactive. He lives on the ranch. Um, he interacts with us on a weekly basis. You know, we talk to him, he talks to us. Um, and it, again, it's just a, a team effort. Everybody wants to see the ranch succeed. And, and so, um, you know, w- if we have an idea of like, Hey, let's try, let's try this, you know, they're, they're always open to that. Or, you know, they'll, if, if they've got something that, that they're trying to, to do, they'll, you know, 
get us to help them. One of the things that they did that was kind of a cool project um, is they colored, I don't know how many cow elk that they captured and colored, but it was a decent number. And what they did is they had, they wanted to see how hunter interaction on the ranch affected the movements of the elk. And so what they did was um, they had each of the guides carry around a GPS every day. Um, And then the, you know, the cows that were being tracked, and then they were able to overlap the hunter's GPS with the cow's GPS and see how that hunter interaction, you know, what it did to the elk, if it really bumped them. And, and it's still an ongoing um, process that I haven't heard, you know, the full results of, but just kind of an interesting project that they're working on up there. Very cool. Yeah. What do you, for, so for your hunts guiding there in Utah, uh, whether that's mule deer or elk, what do you run for optics and has that differed for your sheep hunts uh, in Alaska, for example, or do you always kind of run the same spotter bino setup? Yeah, for sure. So I've had um, a pair of Swarovski SLC 10 by 42s. Um, I actually won them at a banquet when I was like 12. <laughs> and, and, and so that's, that's what I've had for binos forever. It was just the 10 by 42s. And um, then I had a, or I have a, a Swarovski 80, 80 millimeter spotting scope, um, which is, I mean, that combination has been incredible for me. I will say the last like two or three years, I really started, uh, using 15 power vinyls off a tripod hunting mule deer. And I'm, I've been using the, uh, loophole Santium or it was a BX, BX five Santiums. It's it's the loopholes high end glass and that binocular and learning to glass off of a tripod has no doubt been a game changer in my personal success as a as a mule deer hunter and a mule deer guide. It is absolutely amazing the animals that you see when you slow down, put your big glass on a tripod, and just pick things apart. It's it's seriously been been a, a game changer, and so. That's, that's what I use primarily when I'm hunting mule deer is I, you know, pack around my tripod with my 15s on it. Um, obviously I'm not going to pack that around when I'm chasing elk. Um, but for mule deer in particular, those 15s have just been incredible. Uh, when I went to Alaska again, just to try and shave weight and space in my pack when possible, um, I still took my, my 10 by 42 binos, but I took, uh, loopholes, I forget the model like BX four, maybe this is bad. I should know, but anyways, it's, it's a, uh, what is it? 20 to 40 or 15 to 40, just a smaller, smaller scope just to shave, you know, save some weight and space. And it did great up there. I also took that back to Alaska in November when I went to Kodiak hunting sick of blacktails and, and that was a great little scope. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I think, you know, for just, you know, you kind of have to have an arsenal to take into different scenarios, I guess is what I'm getting at. What's the, you already gave us an unsolicited pack endorsement, which thank you for that. But in terms (laughs) of other gear, like what's the standout for you? Like what's a true make it or break it? This matters for me. Hmm. That's a good question. I can tell you one little piece of gear that uh, was an absolute necessity when I was in Kodiak, we were, we were in Kodiak, uh, the week after Thanksgiving and 
I, Steve, I know you were in Kodiak, but I think you were there earlier, weren't you? Uh, yeah, Mark and I were both up there in early November. Yeah, early November. Yeah. Okay, I think it was okay. like the sixth to thirteenth or somewhere in there. Okay. Um, when I was there, the week after after Thanksgiving, they had like it was like a one in every hundred years type Arctic freeze come in. Yeah, that and started storm. when we were there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, it was dude, it was brutal. We we had one day. We woke up on the boat. We had one night. We woke up on the boat. You know, we were, we were, it was a, a chartered hunt that we were staying on a, on a vessel and we woke up in the middle of the night, like one o'clock to the boat firing up. And we were just listening to the wind rip out there. And it's like, Oh crap. Like, what are we, why are we moving the boat at one o'clock in the morning? And, uh, we come to come to find out the captain, uh, said that the, the winds were blowing like 90 to a hundred miles an hour. And, and I mean, we're, 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 and I mean, every day was sustained like 20 to 40 miles an hour with gusts over 60. And we're talking like single digit to high teens for temps. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. Anyways, coming back to your, your question that made things, everything icy. And there was a foot, a foot, foot or more of snow, most places we were going and the crampons that we took in, in one instance, I mean, honestly might've saved our lives. We got in kind of a hairy situation that had we not had those crampons, we might've slid all the way to the bottom of this Canyon that it would have been a, a really bad situation. So just that little piece of gear for that hunt in particular definitely comes to mind, um, of something that I, you probably wouldn't think about in, in most scenarios. And honestly, in most hunts, it's not necessary, but when you're preparing for those late season hunts, I mean, I, I will never not have those in my pack. Um, those like, um, like the little micro spike type ones or like full on crampons, just the little micro spike ones. Okay. Yeah. 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 Those yeah, are just, super just the handy. ones you like, you like pull over your, your boot. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was definitely, uh, a necessity on that hunt. God, I'm trying to think of, you know, other, other particulars for gear. I, I ran a, a QU tent, um, which was nice. I didn't have any problems with, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the company. They're actually out of Cedar city, um, that makes like backpacks and sleeping bags. And I, I had never used them before. I wish I could remember the name this again. I should know this. Um, but they're out of Southern Utah and they make sleeping bags and sleeping pads. And I was a little hesitant just cause they're not as well known at this point, but I was actually quite impressed. They have a synthetic down bag. That was a really nice bag to have again, the, you know, you have, when you're going to Alaska, you're probably going to be dealing with weather and water and whatever else. And the weight of a down bag is great, but if it gets wet, you're in a bad place. And so I just chose to go with this synthetic down and, and I quite like that bag and it was pretty light for considering a synthetic down, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I should have a, a better answer to that, but I mean, nothing's really just jumping out at me for as far as pieces of gear there. Yeah. No worries, man. Well, we've, uh, gosh, we've already hit an hour of those quick. Um, <laughs> If you'd be up for it, man, I'd love to get you back. As you said, mule deer is your passion. And yeah. I'd love to chat some other time and go, kind of go specific on mule deer with you and all the experience you have there. Yeah, I'd, I'd 
I would love that. I could talk for hours on mule deer, you know, and that, that's, uh, again, I think it's just comes back to what you grew up. Well, that's what I grew up doing. I grew up hunting mule deer and the more I hunt them, the more obsessed I become with them, um, to, to hunt, to find hunt and kill a mature mule deer buck, uh, specifically being able to go and do that on, on public land. That's, that is not an e- easy task or an easy feat. And I think that's just what keeps me more and more obsessed with them is just that that challenge there's there's nothing like them for me everybody's got their thing for me it's mule deer for sure yeah is um the ranch that you're hunting those on guiding on um more of like a desert mule deer type setting uh we've actually got both so we've got everything from i think the highest point on the ranch is about nine thousand feet down to about five thousand feet and so we've got everything from you know high country down to winter range um you know, and, and so I prefer hunting the deer out in the desert. And when I say desert, I'm talking high desert, sagebrush, cedars. Um, you know, there's not as many deer out there as there is up on the mountain. Uh, but that's where I spend the majority of my time, both when I'm guiding on the ranch, um, as well as when I'm doing my own personal hunts, I'll, you know, I seek out those areas. I just think, not as much pressure there. Usually, you know, there's always pressure when you're hunting the public land, but a lot of people just drive right, right past a lot of that low country and there's not as many mule deer there, but it, big bucks like to hang there. Hmm. Cool. If, uh, listeners want to follow some of your adventures, maybe reach out, say, Hey, something like that. Do you want to share any social profiles or any of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not super active on social media. I, I, need to be a little bit better about that, but I'm on Instagram, uh, muley crazy 89. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I, on Facebook, just Colton Heward. And, you know, if people have questions or whatever, I'm always willing to, to help out when I can. So feel free to shoot me a message. And if I can, I'll, I'll certainly respond and help you out. And then what was the name again of the ranch that you guide for? Yeah, it's it's wild, wild country outfitters. Wild country. Perfect. Thanks, man. Yeah, you bet. Appreciate the time. You betcha. We'll talk to you guys later. Well, that is a wrap on this one, guys. If you want to learn more about going on a guided hunt, maybe some of the questions you should consider asking as you're looking for outfitters and guides, check out the link in the show description. I actually wrote an article that covers a lot of the information that I have found helpful and planning my first guided hunt. Once again, that link is in the show description and it'll take you over to the exomountaingear.com site to get that article. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. Don't hesitate to reach out to us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com if there's something we can help with. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically and we'll talk to you soon.